Welcome to Shoot Wisely, the content creator's podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi. With over 25 years of production experience, as a documentarian, my cameras have taken me across this country and around this amazing world, capturing and telling stories. The Shoot Wisely podcast is a conversation with fellow storytellers with the goal to inspire. In today's episode, we talk to filmmaker Thanasis Petrakis, who has captured some of the most iconic events in the UFC, boxing, and NBA over the past decade. Thanasis films regularly for the UFC's award-winning series, Embedded. We catch up with Thanasis in Las Vegas ahead of UFC 260. This is our conversation. So I'm just going to run down a little bit of your resume here. Khabib's last fight, Fight Island. You're there. Conor McGregor, Fight Island. You're there. The NBA bubble, the first time there was a bubble in the NBA, you're there. Bus attack, Conor McGregor. Yeah. You're also there. I think most impressive to me is in 2011, the NBA lockout. Kevin Durant goes nuts at Rucker Park, and Mr. Thanasis is there. Um, it's a, yeah. quite an impressive uh, resume, man. Is this something you've always wanted to do? Um, not always. I honestly didn't. Well, I appreciate that. First off, um, not always, but it's because I didn't really know it existed, man. I, I always tell people I was somewhat naive. Like I, I only kind of knew what was around me, like, uh, the information, like the internet wasn't even there growing up, right. Until I was in high school. So, or at least like later, yeah, later in high school. So I didn't know the job existed to go around filming sports. I know that might sound like kind of stupid to someone now. Cause it's such a, like a, it's almost like a normal profession now, but it wasn't then it was like very specific, like people that did that and cameras were hard to get a hold of, like to make really pretty images. You had to have like a hundred thousand dollar camera, like really pretty images, like what we yeah. could do now. So it was never on my radar to be honest. Um, I'm in the same took, boat, man. I was just having that conversation with Andy. I was like, I was always in the photography and film and I always loved sports, but for some reason I never put the two together. Yeah. So, so for me, what happened was I had like a little editing background from high school from doing like production classes, but it was like bare, but that it, you know, the seed was, was there. You know, I made my own highlight tape for trying to go play college football. I made Mm. it for my friends trying to go play basketball. So I knew I could create and I knew I had a little skill there just off of doing like the old avid, like the first one, you know, like star wipes and bar trans and barn open door transitions. Like, you know, like the old school editing, but it was like cool. And I was like, this is cool. Like we're creating stuff. Went to college thinking I was going to be a teacher. I thought I was going to coach and teach. As I said, like, it's what's around you. At least that's how it was for me. Like, both of my parents are immigrants. So, like, I didn't grow up knowing, like, certain things in that everyone, like, knew, I feel like. At least that's how I feel now. Like, I just knew what I was kind of around. And um, I was going to teach and I was going to coach because I was in school and I played sports. I was like, this this would be a great life, you know? When I went to college, I still, you know, majored in that. Um, And I also double majored in communications with the experience I had editing. And I had to do an internship. So it was like one of those things I was forced to do an internship going into my, my junior, going into my senior year. So my sister was working for basically a travel agency, but she was like an executive assistant for like one of the top guys in the agency. And... 
I knew her boss had pull, you know? I was like, can he get me an internship at like MSG or something? Or like, just something. I need to be, I want to be in New York because I'm from there and I want to work in sports. And the Knicks were like everything to me. So I was like, can I work in MSG? And he's like, he can't get you MSG, but he could get you an interview at the NBA. I was like, well, NBA. I was like, that's even better, you know? So I went for that interview and I landed an internship with NBA TV. It was before they went to Atlanta. Wow. So I went to NBA TV in Jersey in Secaucus office and I was there for the summer of 2003. And dude, I swear to God, what went through my mind was this is a job like straight up. I was like, this right. is a job what these guys are doing right now. Like they were doing what I was doing with my friends in college. Like looking up videos on, it wasn't even YouTube then, just like on the internet or like playing like, you know, these were like producers of live TV. So like when they didn't have shows to produce, they'd be playing like Family Feud as like a group in there. And I was like, this is like college. I was like, this is great, you know? And I went back and I went to go like student teach and stuff. And I was like, dude, I can't do that. I just did a summer where I was at the NBA draft where LeBron got drafted. I went to the NBA finals running tapes as like a an intern. Yeah. Uh, it was the Nets Spurs. Um, that year, the NBA was at Rucker Park and they were going up there every night. And kind of the guy that I latched onto was the producer of that show. His name was Edgar Burgos. He became like a mentor of mine. Yeah. And, um, I just experienced all these things and I was like, there's no way I could just go sit in a classroom. Like I still want to teach down the road, but I want to do it when I'm done with all my experiences and actually have knowledge to teach, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was really how the ball, that's how I got into the NBA. And once I got in, it was like, I'm not going anywhere. Like they, right. I'm going to knock these guys door down to get back in here. Cause I had to go back to college. Right. So I, I was relentless staying in touch. Like I'll come back and edit for free in the winter. Like I just want right. to learn, learn, learn. But they couldn't do anything. They were too big of a company to do something like that. So, right. But they still let me come back my winter break. And I, I, I did a production assistant with NBA TV. You know, they paid me a production assistant rate. And then the same thing, like I knew I was going to come back the next year. They said you could come back as a logger. That's how everyone starts at the NBA. They start yeah. everyone as a logger. And what you do is you go through, whether it's live games or field tapes that they shoot, and you log their footage. Meaning, you know, old days, time codes are more important, but you'd write the in time code, the out time code of where the cutaway was, where the basket was, where all this stuff was. So it was all organized. Yeah. And that was my first job at the NBA. And I did that. So I graduated college waited like four months because they weren't hiring to october so i went into like roofing and i went into like um you know framing houses and stuff like that and that yeah. was like a good smack in the face of like okay i gotta get back to that job that was fun right and really from there i just dove all in like i started out as a logger but i knew this is what i wanted to do so i i took all the money i had and i bought a canon gl1 hmm. which was like I don't know, 800 bucks. And I bought an iMac, which was like 600 bucks. I bought like a computer and a camera for like 1500 bucks. And I was living at my mom's like my first year logging. And I would just practice, like I would shoot footage to practice editing and stuff like that. I really was passionate about editing. I didn't think I was going to get into shooting. And the reason why is because you couldn't make the images you could make today. 
Right. It's really hard for kids to really understand that. And I know I sound old when I say that. But until I got a DSLR, I couldn't create images to confident be confident and be like, oh, I could do this professionally because I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. Like I've learned everything off of experience. No film yeah. school. No that's just, I learn it. That's just how I learn is off of experience. So everything yeah. I've learned is off of experience. So when I got a DSLR in my hand, that's like fast forwarding the story. I was like, oh, yeah. like I'm capable of doing this. I thought people knew something that I didn't know, <laughs> yeah. but I was just doing it on these like DV cameras with no interchangeable lenses. You couldn't get yeah. your f stop that low. You know, yeah. it was just it was just like a video camera basically. Right. So you couldn't right, get right. depth of field. You couldn't rack focus. You couldn't get these like cinematic images. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I practiced with those cameras and just dove right into it, man. I, I I started anybody that needed help production, I would do it. I had a friend that had. Uh, a public relations agency i would shoot his red carpets and give him like little like media like videos that he'd be like distributing out like we would do interviews with you know russell simmons would walk the red carpet we'd interview him you know um and we would put together like media packets me and my friend that was practicing shooting and we we were maybe getting money but nothing really we were really (laughs) just doing it to learn you know and but we were also helping out my friend that was an entrepreneur and throwing these parties and it was like you know we were kind of figuring it all out i built my skills with that and then my friend edgar the same guy that did the the rucker show he had a streetball show in the city i started Mm. shooting on that shot hundreds of hours on that show every park in the city edited our own features like he had a show on msg like a half hour show like for three or four years he was ahead of the game with that like if it would have came out in the in the social media age it would have been a lot bigger like he would go to dykeman rucker um kingdom you know watson in the bronx like he would go to um um all these places every borough and the whole show was on summer basketball in new york and we would do features day in the life segments. So like I learned really like, and he would pay me, but you weren't getting like real day rates. Like I wasn't like a DP. I was like a kid that had a camera and was just trying to make it happen. Yeah. And they would give us instructions and stuff like that. But really that's how I learned, man. I was just like in the fire. Like I just chased it because I loved hoops and I loved this new thing of like creating. It wasn't content then. It was like, just creating anything out of something like just picking up a camera and filming. Um, it takes you places too. like, I always say like this to people, like if you offered me to go to the Super Bowl and not even the Super Bowl, let's just say a high school basketball game, yeah. shout out to LA. They just got their season actually kicked off. So LA high school basketball is back. I film a lot of high school hoops still. Nice. If I'm going to a high school game to watch a prospect, just as a fan, I'd rather have my camera. Sure. I don't know yeah. if you're the same way. I Absolutely, mean, I'm 100%. sure you are. Sure yeah. you are. Like I, I live the summer riots in LA through your eyes, through your camera. So like, I'm sure you're the same way. You yeah. could have went there and participated without it. Um, yeah. But I'm the same way with sports, right? If you tell me someone's great, I'm going to want to go experience it with a camera because yeah. like one, you're going to see more things and like, I don't know. Like, I just like it like that. So, um, going to go shoot for like a summer ball show 
wasn't like tough for me. Like I saw yeah. Kemba Walker when he was 15 win the Rucker Championship with the same moves he's pulling right now or that he won the Big East tournament with. Like the pull up, yeah. step back from like the foul line. I saw him destroy dudes when he was 15. His nickname right. was Easy Pass and he <laughs> killed it because in New York, how you go by is like, you know, in LA you have fast track. In New York it's yeah. called Easy Pass. So yeah. like no one can stop Kemba. And he was 15 and I was there to film Kenny Satterfield but how I remember Kemba is that, you know? So it's like when you have a camera in your hands, you get to experience sports in a, in a different way. 100%. Um, so, yeah, I say all that to set up, and I did a couple of years working a high school channel, all this other stuff. But I say all that to get to the Kevin Durant story, which is – and even on top of that, I skipped over that. We did a whole hour documentary on Rucker Park in 2008 called The Blackout, and it, it, it highlighted the year that I interned at NBA TV where Jay-Z and Fat Joe had a team. So I learned how to do a documentary just by experiencing it. Like I bought a Canon XH, no, X, XHA1. It was mm -hmm. a step up of the other DV I had. So still DV cameras. Out the box, we rolled up on Fat Joe for that interview. So if anyone watches that doc, it's on our YouTube channel, over a million views. Um, we rolled up with him. That was the first time I ever used that camera. Right. You know, like, and it was just like turning it on. All right, I guess we're going to shoot this interview. Like, and I look back at that interview now and it's like embarrassing. We were zooming in and out. And right. like, and I say we because I, I experienced a lot of my um, – early filming with my buddy Rob Carbuccia. So we did it a lot together. We would like split on a camera or something like that. So we could learn, yeah. like have access to it, you know? Yeah. But fast forward, now you get to 2011. DSLR has already been out for a couple of years, but it was my first DSLRs. I had enough money to get a 7D um, and I got one. And again, out the box, Kevin Durant, I see on Facebook is going to Rucker Park. Right. And Greg, rest in peace, he passed away a couple of years ago. Greg uh, Marius, who's uh, an absolute pioneer in basketball, um, was he ran Rucker Park. And mm -hmm. we, well, he ran the tournament Entertainers Basketball Classic at Rucker Park, mm -hmm. right? Rucker Park is the cities. Um, he ran the tournament there. What we all know it as, the hip hop yeah. there, and, yeah. you know, Chris Brown performing at halftime, like, that's Greg Marius's tournament. Um, and so I saw on Greg's Facebook, KD's coming. And I hit him up like, dude, is KD like really coming? Like, because you heard rumors all the time, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Not so much by yeah. 2011, but early 2000s because Kobe had showed up, AI had showed up. So people believed rumors. You'd be like, T-Mac yeah. showing up. Like, no T-Mac yeah. here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you heard rumors. Yeah. So when KD said he was showing up, he's coming off of a scoring title. I was like, he's coming to play outside. Like, yeah. like I don't really believe this, but it was the lockout. I had nothing going on. So I took yeah. my 7D and I went up. And this, this is the part where it's like relationships and stuff like that. Like, yeah. You couldn't – nobody could just take their 7D, 5D and walk into Rucker that night and shoot it because Greg right. didn't allow cameras. Greg was ahead right. of the game. Like yeah. Greg understood the value, what his tournament was, and he only internally filmed it. You know, right. So when, when I went up there, it was because we had a relationship with the blackout. 
we had mm-hmm. done the documentary and they and the tournament had started to cool off so they weren't having cameras up there like they weren't going to have a video camera up there right you know what i mean like there was yeah. no other video camera maybe somewhere high in the stands but i've actually never even seen it um yeah. so the footage is is and the reason why i wanted to shoot with the 7d is the 7d shot 60 frames a second and i was like 60 frames a second that is sick like i never had no 60 frames a second we had like 60 i like on like our dv cameras like it's like laughable now right yeah yeah yeah. it's laughable like you could get an a7s that's going to shoot like 120 right now right right um and that was at 60 frames a second at 720p, so it wasn't even 1080. So yeah. when I went in there, I was just so gassed that I had this camera that was shooting slow-mo. Um, right. And yeah, that's that's kind of how it happened. And then KD took care of the rest. And then I just had, you know, I had natural skills of shooting basketball from an NBA background, from working yeah. that high school channel, from working that summer ball show like i had already filmed hundreds if not thousands of games by that time so like it wasn't just like my first time filming a game you know um so yeah that's how that came about and then like like when he hit those threes man that was crazy that's just lightning in a bottle yeah and when the crowd rushes them yeah because because anyone who's honest if you go to 100 street ball games, I don't even care if it's at the historic Rucker Park, you're not getting like even half of them to be really Mm-mm. great games. There's going to be sloppy play. One yeah. team's going to be way better than the next. There one might be yeah. one guy way better than the rest. Like You're going to get some, some competitive games when you get two teams to match up. But for the most yeah. part, like a dominant team is going to smash, you know? Yeah. So like KD also had like a good game in front of him. You know, like yeah. John Lucas the third played in that game. I think he had like twenty something points. Um, but it all happened like what KD did. He hit five threes in a row. And yeah. if you watch the clip, there's only four on there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think it's four, but it's actually five. Um, my camera <laughs> was know. overheating. The oh, camera man. was overheating. Yeah. So it was the first time I ever had that because like Classic. the old DV things, as much as yeah. they didn't. Um, put out great images. Those things were beast. They were never going to overheat or anything like that. And um, it was, you know, a summer day in New York and it was like one of those hot, humid things and the longer it was on, I had a warning and I remember I had to shut off the camera. He hit a three and if you watch the clip, he hits a three within the first like two seconds of the clip. So the clip I uploaded, I went home, Greg was like, did you get that dunk? Cause there's this great dunk. I was like, yeah, I got the dunk. But I was like, that three barrage was crazy. I was like, yeah. I think I should upload it. And he's like, all right, upload it. And dude, by the morning time. So like yeah. I uploaded just that clip. I didn't edit it. If you saw the title, it's called like Kevin Durant unedited or something right. like that. Yeah. Cause it's just a clip. It's just like mm. clip, put a board in front of it, uploaded yeah. it. Within 24 hours, my phone literally shut down because like it was it was it wasn't like charged, but it was low on battery. But there were so many emails and stuff coming in that it just like shut down. I remember I was at work editing and I was like, what is going on? Like my phone wouldn't even turn on. Dude, we had emails from like broadcast in India, 
like Japan, like all over the world wanting to use that clip. And a lot right. of people at first didn't think it was real because they were like, when did this happen? It couldn't have happened last night because you were hearing about it, but the clip right. was up the next day. Yeah. And a lot of people on YouTube were like, this can't be it. This I just heard about this, but it was right. up like the next morning. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the story with that. And it was just kind of lightning in a bottle and it's still paying dividends. Like we're going to try to do a 10-year kind of short doc look back on it because the 10 yeah. years coming up in August. I mean, that's monumental, man. That that I mean, it's just like, you know, scoring title and like him winning back to back, like all that stuff is cool. <laughs> But that's what legends are made of. You know, when he made that three and, you know, that last three where he was just like, I don't know how far behind the three point line and they bring in like the double team and he's just like, all right, I'm just going to wet this. And when everybody rushes the court, I mean, that moment, it's just what it's all about. You know, it's just what it's all about. And the fact that you were there to capture it. How much do you think the fact that you started as an editor shaped your shooting? It's everything. Yeah, I shoot as an editor. Yeah. I shoot as an editor. Um, I don't think one's better or worse. I think I might le lack some creativities that some DPs have because I shoot like an editor. But I'm so we'll break that down. When somebody says they shoot like an editor, I, I think yeah. that they're making sure they get the coverage. They're making sure they get the B-roll and they're not shooting. They're not overshooting. That's that's what I think. But what do you mean by shooting? Yeah, like so I, I don't necessarily equate it to overshooting. I'm just always thinking of the edit. Like if someone's talking and it's this great bite, I'm thinking if this guy has another angle to cut to if he needs to cut out something that he's talking about so it could be yeah, cinematic coverage. and it's not going to be a jump cut i'm not going to just stay at you know some wide shot while he's talking if i have the ability to zoom in which i usually do in the field because i i work we work with zoom lenses it's hard to shoot doc style stuff with primes and stuff like sure. that so a lot of the times we're working with like you know like a wide zoom and it's just stuff like that or like, you know, before I go into a scene, I'm going to knock off establishers of the place that I'm going into yeah. so that they could locate it. I'm getting cutaways in the room. If they're eating, I'm getting cutaways of the food. Like I'm just always yeah. thinking of does this guy – does this guy have enough stuff in the edit room to make this work? Because whether yeah. I think it works in the field or not is really irrelevant because I'm not going to be in the edit room with them. The show I'm on right now, the episode's going to come out the next day. I'm never going to see it until it comes out. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's about doing things that you know hurt you in the edit room. You know, cutaways. You don't. You're not holding cutaway. I remember one time I was working for a high school channel, and the producer was like, "You know, you're not holding your cutaways long enough." And everybody is always, you know, "Oh, not me." You know, like, "Oh, what are you talking about?" Like everyone's defensive at first. So when I say I shoot like an editor, it's because I've sh I've edited also a lot of my own footage. So there's an accountability that's unmatched because when you bring your footage in and it's a two-second cutaway and you need it to be four seconds, you yeah. can't blame anybody. You can't be sitting in there exactly. being like, oh, those guys are messing up in the field. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And they're like, no, dude, that's you that's messing up in the field. So exactly. like I have to edit a lot of my stuff when I do stuff for my own brand. So like – 
you know what you missed out on. You should have got more cutaways when you were in that room. The guy was talking about, you know, the guy was talking about how much water he drinks, but you didn't film all the gallons of water in the fridge, or you didn't get cutaways of the glass filling up. Like, you got to be thinking of what they need to cut away. Like, if you're just going to sit around and just hold this wide shot of your subject, well, now you're just like his friend with an iPhone. Like, you have to constantly be, you know, be. It's it's constantly filming filming the story in a sense, but that's what yeah. I think of thinking like an editor because I was an editor of like docs, so I'm yeah. always getting them. Well, at least I'm trying to. I mean, maybe editors yeah. will say something different, but you know, also sound. <laughs> yeah. Sound is huge in our show. It's yeah. called OT. You keep saying our that, show. You're, so you're you're shooting embedded right now, correct? Yeah. So I'm in Vegas for UFC Embedded, um, which is an amazing show for people to learn from too. I tell this to anybody I mentor because it's one camera guy with one fighter. So anything that you're seeing in a scene, there's no audio guy, there's no producer, there's one camera guy, one fighter. And whoever is with that fighter is miking the fighter, they're shooting, they're producing, they're talking to the guy on text, yo, we gotta be here. Like obviously there's a team that sets up the initial show, but I'm saying when the week's starting to flow, sure. it's you and the fighter, and you have to build that relationship, so you have to have producer skills, you have to have audio skills, because the whole show is based off of just these moments. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's what I say with our show. And the reason why I say you could learn from that show is the way they cut it and the way they shoot it, you could just pick stuff from it. Because sure. you're like, oh, I see what he's doing. You know, he had to get he, – he, he, you know, they they didn't want to show – jump cut. So they cut to his boxing gloves or they cut to yeah. something else and then they come back to him, you know. Um and then I, I had also no idea it was just one shooter on those. On those, I had no idea. As much as I watch him and as, as uh, you know, I know you and a couple other people that shoot him. I had no idea it was just one person. And I had yeah. no idea you guys were doing the sound because the sound is always so great. Yeah. Well, thank you, and I'll pass that along. And that's like a credit to just like the guys in the field know what they're doing. Like, yeah. it's the show has a, a cadence now, but it's built off of what we call in the doc world OTF interviews, which is mm -hmm. on the fly interviews. So yeah. a lot of times, you know, you're watching a 30 for 30, it's this lit up interview, right? We don't have time to do that stuff on this show. So no yeah. matter what they do, if they're going to eat, um, if they're going to work out, if they're going to do whatever it is, you're going to get a basic rule of thumb is you're going to get an interview before and after because yeah. you're going to have to have it in the tense of like we're going in to do this and then kind of them coming out. So it's a little bit of like reality type interviews because they're yeah. kind of narrating what's going along. Yeah. You, you try to go a little um, – that's basic. You know, you want to get better sound bites than narration. But sure. but th you know how the show is made. So that's kind of how I'm breaking it down. Like you're just filming moments. Like nothing yeah. set up. We're just on the fly filming these guys for the week. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so, it's so important about relationships, you know, I mean, you have to be really good, but I always tell people right now, it's like, never dismiss anybody because you never know who that person is going to become or who that person is going to um, recommend you to. And, and, you know, sometimes people, you know, when I sh had shot for the NBA, people would say, how do you shoot for the NBA? How do you? And I don't want to discourage young shooters, but the NBA is a tough nut to crack. And I say that because the UFC is even tougher. And you know, I've been trying to crack that nut for a long time. And, and the one thing that people have to understand is, you know, when you shoot an NBA game, 
you're 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 with the guys. You know, maybe you go to a workout here and there, but you know, you're with the guys maybe two out two three hours before the game. You see them walking in. You see them getting ready. They're shooting around, but they're already in it. When you're shooting the UFC, these people are preparing for battle. They're weight cutting. They're training. They're they're watching fit like you can't just be some some random dude going in there with these fighters like we have to build relationships with everybody but like i mean i'm sure the fighters are moody sometimes they're not eating they're they're uh they're training all the time so how do you how do you balance that whenever you're with the fighters just have a ton of respect for what they do so i approach it with that like right now when i'm done with this i'm gonna go film um sean o'malley's weight cut and Mm -hmm. like you nailed it like as the week goes on when you meet up with them in their hometown on friday like maybe like a week ago um they're happy they're eating you know they're at their normal weight they're in their hometown you fly to fight week on monday tuesday then they have ton of media obligations they got to cut weight they got to do all that stuff so yeah, by the end of the week, you're you're gonna get a more irritable fighter, especially if they have a big weight cut. You mentioned Habib before, who just recently retired. He had a huge weight cut. So like, when you deal with a situation like that, and you have to get an OTF, what I told you, an on-the-fly interview, you got to use your producer hat and be like, "Why would I piss this guy off? Exactly. Let me just ask his trainer. Let me ask his manager for a soundbite this time. Somebody that's in the room that can explain yeah. what's going on, so the editor could still make a scene out of it without yeah. asking the guy that hasn't had a sip of water in you know eight hours." for to talk to you so it's like it's 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 that's probably the extreme case but it's really just like i could never do what these guys do so it's very easy in this sport to come from people can no like they're every time you're around them it's inspiring to an nth degree like you i i I recently filmed a a short doc on uh paul felder cutting weight and Mm -hmm. he had to cut um it was called five days notice he got the fight five days out he was sitting at home you know no no fight on the table and then five he got a call and he had to fight in five days which means he had to lose about 20 to 30 pounds and i was with him for like the last three days of it there's no way i have the mental or physical fortitude to do what he did like the the respect that you gain for these guys just being around them one week is just insane and it's inspiring it's like kind of corny but like i was actually just coming home from my last trip and saying this it's inspiring i've never been around a fighter where i'm not inspired because they do their discipline is so intense and so extreme that everyone can learn from them they master 100%. five disciplines of martial arts and then before the biggest – every time they have a fight, they have to cut weight that no one would be willing to do. Like if I miss a meal yeah. in a day, I get cranky. Like these yeah. guys might not eat for – it's just wild to watch. So I really enter it with like a ton of respect for them and then it's just like fun because a lot yeah. like Sean, like he likes fighting. So there's yeah. like when you're around him, there's not yeah. going to be any like anxiety of like getting some of those guys have it right. Like some guys, some guys doing it for a job, just like anything else. Some guys, you know, maybe like it when they get in there or what's happening, but they have a little nerves. There's other guys that just like love it. So like you yeah. know, you you have certain you know like it, it, it all depends on the person. But I think with everyone, you just treat them with a ton of respect. Um, 
in how you film though, not just like respect. I'm saying like on how you film. Like sure. you, if they're getting on the mats, you take your shoes off. If they're getting in the cage, you take your shoes off. Yeah. You know, you're not going to interrupt them for a question when they're doing real stuff. Like, you know, you just respect the sport. And the more you're around it, the more you know when it's okay to film, when it's not okay to film. Like they don't want you filming strategy. doesn't even sure. matter if you're with the league. Like cameras yeah. get shut down, a lot of people. Um, yeah. So like – yeah, I think I think that's really how I came with it. But I started so like my MMA. Just to give a quick story on, um, please, just networking and like not networking really, but like chase just chasing and like I I don't know I can't other say doing work for free. But I think that's a vital thing to do, especially if you're in your come up. So when I got that same seven D in 2011, by 2012. My friend Anthony, who I do Fresh Focus Sports with, um, his dad was into MMA gyms. And we just got these new cameras. So we were like, dude, we'll come up and we'll film your gym. Like he said, they got some pros there and it was in Pennsylvania. So we went there and we filmed it. And like we had some prime lenses. We were shooting 60 frames a second. We broke out like a little dolly we made with PVC pipes. Like we tried a bunch of stuff. We shot interviews, something that we weren't really confident in, lighting them and stuff yeah. like that. Like we did all that practice on this MMA gym. And then when we came out with it, we like, we got a bunch of dope stuff. We should do a little story on this thing. We did like a little story on them. And then that we started circling around just like within our like you know social media and stuff like that we sent it to certain gyms and they were cool with us coming through so then we went to jim miller's gym we went to chris weidman's gym and we went to henzo gracie's gym nice. and at the time i guess weidman's was longo's yeah, yeah, it was Ray Longo's gym, but we went there and we did a little story because we were we were we knew we wanted to get into documentary films on our own. We were already editing them for other companies, um, so we did a, a, a like a pilot doc on how MMA was illegal in New York, and we highlighted these gyms in New York and New Jersey how there's these high level guys, but they can't even fight in like Madison Square Garden, yeah, and you know we tried to like sell it to Madison Square Garden, but whatever. By doing that. And getting and, and doing MMA content, it led me to one of my basketball contacts, who's now an assistant coach with the um, Hornets, Jay Hernandez, nice. to invite me out to his pre-draft with his NBA players. And he was like, "We're training Muay Thai on Wednesdays," and it was Jordan Clarkson, Noah Vonleh. There was several several guys in there, um, and. Long story short, <laughs> they were training MMA for cardio on like Wednesdays. So right. that was kind of what we were doing. It is like Jay was trying to become like an amateur fighter, but he was also an NBA trainer. Like he had trained Kemba Walker, Tobias Harris, like all these guys. So like the documentary was called Rep Your Work. It was Jay's kind of mantra. But mm -hmm. the whole thing was about giving these NBA players a fighter's mentality about how in a fight – their whole the whole cardio is that in a fight there's never a break yeah. so when you want a break in cardio instead of the break it was basically like a reset you would do something else rest no um you would just like say you were doing jumping jacks you'd switch to push-ups and right. because you were doing so many that's just kind of giving you an example like it's not yeah, you're yeah. not you're not resting you're just switching up what you're doing and the relief that's what it was it's the relief not the rest right and yeah. With this doc we came out with, it was cool. Kemba was in it. Tobias, definitely check it out. It's called Rep Your Work. And um, 
I was working for a show called Backstage Lakers. And the producer of that show, I was like, hey, I got all this footage of Jordan Clarkson. You should check it out. And I, I sent him the doc. And he was like, oh, I didn't know you like MMA. Shout out Brian DeClue. He's like, I should hook you up with my guys that shoot content for the UFC. Mm. And it was that. So it was yeah. chasing a passion of shooting this new sport that I liked, MMA, with these new cameras that I had. And it wasn't right away. But eventually, because I was chasing that content that I liked to film just by myself, we weren't making sure. money on it. It was just a dope story that we wanted to do. That led to someone being like, oh, I didn't know you liked this. You should shoot with them. They could have done that, whatever. But because I was putting that out there, it led to that. And then not only that, I learned how to light, right? Like I learned how to tell a story better. Like all those things get better and better and better and better. And that's just literally how I've done my career. If I had to say basically an example, that's always how I've done my career. The blackout, I did that just because I was like, I want to direct a documentary. No one yeah. in any work that I work for is letting me do that, but I know I could do it. Watch. And I did right. it, you know? So it's like, I think you just have to chase a lot of, the reason why I say that is I think a lot of people say, and I don't know what the is on this show, that you, a lot of people hate on free work and I, and I do to an extent as well. I agree with them to an extent. Like if it becomes to the point where you're taking advantage of people, exactly. that's bad. That's bad. If you're taking advantage of someone, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. But if the free work is still an advantage to you, it's not bad. Yeah. If no one's paying you to do something, they're not going to pay you until you show you can do it. Exactly. So I wasn't getting paid to light interviews for the longest times because I had big insecurities about lighting. Like I would never light these interviews. Even, even when I did my own docs, like my own passion ones, I would just go to dope locations like, you know, across, across like the Hudson River and like New right. York City was in the background. So it would be just like an awesome location, you know? Um, so you learn so much that when you actually get paid to do these things, now you have the confidence because you've already made all those mistakes on your own projects or whatever yeah. that project was where you have no, you know, and I don't know, that's, that's my two cents with it. So I, if anyone is discouraged in that, I'm still doing free work now, but I pick my spots. For and sure. It's usually for my own brand, but if it's not for my own brand, it would be something that I'm not getting paid to do. Yeah. For instance, not that I'm going to do that, but if someone was like, yo, I'm shooting a short movie, well, I don't have any narrative work. No one's right. going to hire me to shoot narrative work. I'm yeah. a doc guy. It's like doc and sports. Even music video, if I wanted to get hired, probably I could get hired, but I'm going to need some things and experience some things in that world. Not that I'm yeah. going into that world. I'm I just kind it. of giving you an example. So like, yeah. I, I, think, I think for young people to get discouraged, it's a bad thing in that because – and there's the other example. LeBron's not getting paid on the jump shots he's putting up in the summer. Right. He's getting paid for those games. So yeah. you still have to get those reps to get better. If you're just going to work when you get paid, how are you going to be better than people that are not? Like, yeah. for real, like how is someone going to be better at shooting basketball than me if they only do it when they get paid, when yeah. I, I'm shooting thousands of games for free? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Point yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and I know you were early to the Gary V train, as was I, and, and that's always like a big thing of his. It's just like, you gotta you gotta put in the work, and if you're worried about getting paid right off the bat, then you know you're, you're missing the point. It also goes, good, it also goes sorry. back to passion. Like if you're passionate about something, then you know you For just sure. gotta put in the work. 
like music videos, that would be work to me. I wouldn't shoot music video for free. I'm not going to shoot a wedding for free. Like I wouldn't right. do that because to me, that's not like passionate stuff. Yeah. But if you were like, dude, there's the best basketball prospect and he's going to play here, I'd be like, one, I want to see it just as like a hoop fan. And two, yeah. I'm going to bring my camera. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so I think, I think passion is, is huge in that. 100%. And, and talking about gear, when you shoot, well, let's talk about this the UFC from what I've seen, it seems like everything's shot on cannons. Yeah, we we uh, we always were Canon um, um, C three hundreds for the longest, right. but now we're on FS seven. Uh -huh. Ah, so you switched to Sony's. Okay. I mean, not 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 exclusively. You know what I mean? But like, there's there. You, you, they're, the edit team's so good; they can match cameras if someone wants to come in with a C three hundred or something. But yeah, yeah, it's not we're, we're you know because if you you can't use like a red or something like that on this this show because you would need an audio guy. Like you need something that's an all in one type of a camera. Right? Would it even be necessary to shoot a red? I, I mean, no, I wouldn't think so. I'm just saying, like, yeah, for some of their bigger docks and stuff, they're they're gonna bump up the cameras. But when we're in the field, you got to be you can't get much bigger than an FS7 because you have to be somewhat nimble. Yeah. I don't want to get too gear heavy here, but what do you think of the FS6? I haven't shot with it yet. I haven't shot with it yet. I read up on it a little bit. I mean, it looks great. I'm sure. I mean, my friend has the FX9 and it's fantastic. So right. I think that's kind of the baby brother of that, right? The FX9. I'm not really too sure to tell you the truth. I, I'm familiar with the FS5, and then the FS6 came out, and then the FS7, obviously, which I used to shoot a lot with. Right. Um, yeah. So the FX9 is a full frame kind of big brother of the FS7 now. Mm, um, I think the expensive. FS6 is below that. So mm. the I, I think they both have that cool facial uh, autofocus. Yeah. Um, my friend Philippe, who shoots on the show, he uses that on the show, and pretty sweet like you know when you walk with someone you could like touch the screen follow their face um so Crazy. yeah I, I think i think there's a lot of features and it's full frame so for wide shots that's huge because like you know the fs7 is 35 millimeter sensor so I, I the lens i have on there not right now but the ones i usually have on is an 18 to 55 but it really plays more like a 24 or something mm -hmm. like that it's not really yeah. an 18 um mm -hmm. because of the crop so the FX9 has that, and I, I don't know about the FS6, so I would have to look into that. But I think with me for cameras, where I'm at, because I've been so heavy in the field cameras, you know, I had multiple versions of the C300 um, Canon, which I loved. I have the FS7. I think the next time I take a step up will be like a really big step up, like, mm -hmm. like in a mirror or something like that, which is yeah. kind of the standard um, sports documentary camera. Um, the uh, the the Ari Amira, mm -hmm. and now it's kind of going into its eighth or ninth year. So I think I'll probably, I'm hoping they drop a new one soon. I'm sure the guys who have it are not hoping that, but I'm hoping they drop a new one within the next year or two, two years, so I could get that and kind of really upgrade. I don't want to, you know, it's a dangerous game playing with cameras. You know, the, the, the kind of the rule of thumb that will at least always keep you safe is you only buy cameras that are getting rented from you or in other words that your clients are using. Yeah. So 
you know, if your clients are using Canon, but you love Sony, you know, when you buy that Sony, that's becoming more of a toy than it is becoming, you know, a tool for your industry. Because if they, if your only client wants Canon, then, you know, it's defeating the purpose. So, um, I guess it could be tough before you have any clients, but that's you're probably still in the DSLR range if that's the case, and then you're yeah. safe with anything you go with because all those yeah. cameras are great, and those jobs aren't really going to require a specific camera. That only really happens when you get on like certain type of a show that's on like a some type of platform. Yeah, and this is all your equipment, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I built it up over just over the years. So then when UFC hires you, they, they just expect you to have all your equipment. They're not distributing. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Because I mean, for the most part, so like, I think the industry standard and it's kind of going away is when you have your own equipment, you know, you're billing them for it. So sure. they're expecting you to have anything. And then within your invoice, you're charging them a day rate and then you're charging them for your equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so having your own equipment can be beneficial if you're getting those rentals because they're using your gear. That's why I was saying if you're not getting a camera they're going to use. Um, but I also think that's somewhat of a dying system of the more younger shooters I hear, the less I hear about camera rentals and that people are just kind of expecting them to have the camera. Um, I feel fortunate that I got in beyond that. Um, but it's also not, I mean, otherwise your day rate's just gonna have to increase a lot because there's, you know, cameras yeah. don't just magically appear on set. If someone wants a red, no. you gotta either have it or rent it. So yeah. I don't know how they're getting away with that, but it's um, that's kind of the business model for us is, you know, we charge a day rate and then we charge a camera rental. Yeah. So the camera pays itself off. Yeah. And, and then what know, about the, go ahead. No, go ahead. And what about the NBA? seems like they have more of uh, cameras that you use, correct? Well, when you're shooting, like if you're shooting Phantom or something like that, they have their own stuff. So they're shipping that around the country to their designated shooters. Um, But most of the guys they're going to hire in local markets, they'll have their own gear. It's just a lot of logistics if you don't, you know? It's like going to the rental house every time and, you know, making sure you have every little thing that you need that starts to add up. So it's just easier when people have it. Even me, like I hire people. It's a lot easier if someone's like, I got my own gear because then you don't have to worry if, you know, they didn't give them a shotgun mic or, you know, the screw's loose and it doesn't work. Like, you know, uh, to be honest, I'd rather hire – if I was doing a show, I'd rather hire someone with their own camera that they're comfortable with than give them a better camera that they're not comfortable with because I feel like they'll just get better stuff with the tool they're comfortable with. Right. You know, so there there is – there is, but at the same time, if you're really, I'm just saying in a, in a, in a crapshoot, you know, people that are good yeah. are good. They can pick up any camera and it's going to be great. You know, they yeah. pick up a 7D right now and make that thing look like an Oscar winning movie if, if you're good. Yeah. So, um, I think that, I think that I honestly, I think gear is one of the most overrated things there is. Yeah, and I think I, I really do. And I think one quick story I think we're running out of time, but one quick story. I went to shoot Mayweather in 2013. It was for um, it was for a pay per view show mm-hmm. that we were doing with this producer named Lee Simons, and me and my friend Anthony, the guy I do Fresh Focus Sports with, uh, we were we were out there, 
and I was intimidated, man. Like Mayweather was my favorite athlete at the time, mm. pretty much at the time by far because all my childhood heroes had kind of been out of their prime. So Mayweather was my guy. I was yeah. watching 24-7 like crazy leading up to it for years, probably one of the shows where I wanted to get into doc stuff, right? Mm. That and Hard Knocks were like the two shows I used to love watching. Like to me, yeah. that was the standard of like what we do. And so 2013, before his Guerrero fight, where it was his first fight on Showtime, I go out there with my 5D. And I had been shooting with the NBA with my 5D. I was skilled with the 5D. I should have been more confident. That's tough, man, to shoot with the NBA with the 5D. Oh, it was doc-style stuff. It was doc-style stuff. So like um, the association, we used to do a show, like where I'd be with the Nets or the Celtics. You're on a bus, on planes. like So behind-the-scenes stuff with the 5D. Um, and so I go out there and the first day or before we go out there, I'm like, all right, I can't, my normal rig with the NBA was a monopod on a 5d, right? Just simple. Yeah. The monopod kept my hand off the DSLR and I just put my other hand to focus on the DSLR and zoom and stuff, but it kept the shake off by keeping it on the monopod. That was the main reason why I had it. Yeah. So when I go to the Mayweather thing, I'm like, no, we're going to do Mayweather. I got to get a rig. Like, I got to get a rig, dude. I have to have a rig because, like, we're going to be there. HBO is going to be there or Showtime, whoever's going to be there. I was like, I can't look like an idiot with this freaking monopod. So I get out there. There's even a picture. I I would have to find it. But I got this, like, orange, like, huge freaking rig. Don't even know how it's, like, properly balanced if it is because I don't use rigs. I never used one after that ever again. (laughs) And Mayweather finally shows up three hours later. Right. We're walking him in after he gets out of his car. And I can't – my 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 skills are off. All yeah. these skills that I practiced and did hundreds of hours with of walking around with my monopod and knew how to do everything and work around and be cognizant. I yeah. threw out the window and I went to this stupid thing of this rig so I would look cool. Yeah. And I was getting like, I had a mat box on it. It was freaking ridiculous, dude. And I'm getting like too close to him. And he was like, kind of like looking back to me like that, but it was like, whatever. I yeah. just came in too hot because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't judge like my freaking self. Yeah. So we go in there and he I'm only does laughing because I've been there, bro. <laughs> so we go in there, and the guy that's been shooting all his 24-7s, I don't want to get his name wrong. His first name is definitely Jeff. I don't know if it's Jeff Fisher or something like that. He mm. had a beard, super talented. He's mm. won like 25 Emmys. The dude is legit. Yeah. And he is in the ring with his freaking 5D handheld dude. <laughs> 5D handheld and his shots look beautiful. And then he tosses it on a tripod on this old vintage, like, you know, 300 millimeter lens that was like 300 bucks, but right. it was just this awesome lens where he could get tight shots. Yeah. And I'm looking at his thing and I'm like, oh my God, like this dude has his handheld. Yeah. And he's on a try. And then he's switching over to this and he's getting the most amazing shots. And I'm like an idiot. So the next day I came back, I went monopod. Right. And 90% of the shots that we used for the show are on that when I'm just on my monopod, confident, moving around, knowing I'm going to be. So it's it just it, – I have a ton of stories like that. Yeah. But like you can't let that stuff get in your way. If you can make yeah. dope images and you could do it your way, do it your way. Yeah. 
especially if you don't have some corporate over you, like some big company or something that's making you do it a uniform way. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Oh man, I got to ask you, um, you've been around some amazing athletes and uh, you know, one of my favorite athletes who I just, he's just such a, like a mystical creature is Habib Nurmagomedov. And I just want to, huh? I just saw him today. What? So there's just so many shots like I can think of, but there's this one shot where he's just kind of sitting, I don't know, it's somewhere in Abu Dhabi and he's, it looks like it's in the hotel and it looks like he's just sitting on his phone and you're shooting him and there's this big window behind him. Um, I just got to ask you as a fan, man, what, what is he like? Dude, he's the most humble, nice, sweetest guy in the world. Yeah, I'd say the the best thing I could say about Khabib that I've summed it up is um, if you're around him and his, you know, eight brothers, they call each other, but cousins, brothers, you know, yeah. uncles, wherever they are, you wouldn't know he's the superstar unless you knew he was the superstar, you know? And you've been around enough athletes to know that that's not true. You could tell who the superstar is right away, even if they're with friends and family. You know, they're propped up a little more. Yeah, for sure. And it's not with him, man. He's just he's just humble, humble guy. Um, and then relentless. Yeah. You know, relentless worker, single-minded focused, you know, it's like it, – Yes, he loves soccer and he loves um, the football, basketball, whatever it is, is that they play. Yeah, but no, but he loves soccer. Like yeah. he loves soccer. Like he could name every player in Real Madrid for the last like 15 years. Like he right. loves soccer, but right. I've still never seen him ever put anything before training, even watching a video, a cell phone video of that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's never like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not going to. He doesn't care what music's on for the training. Like, you know, some guys have a billion things that they need. Like, he's just singularly focused on what he does. And I think that's just a credit to his dad because yeah. I think a lot of the, his guys are like that. But he leads yeah. the way, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think, and honestly, too, not to talk about sports here, but I think he's really retired, even though I know he just came out and said it. You know, it's so easy for so many people to come back and say, oh, I'm not retired anymore. But that dude has been doing it for so long that I, I think he deserves to just kind of step away, you know? Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, yeah I think he's gone. Um, he, in his last fight in Abu Dhabi, um, when he was walking, like they, they, the hotel really took care of everyone there. So at the end when of he the fight, they were just, he was limping. You said? Yeah, that after that fight, he was limping pretty bad, right? Yeah, after yeah. But fight? I'm saying when he came when he came back to the hotel, they like put off like, you know, you know, cheer, like ticker tape parade kind of for him, you yeah. know? I, I know and, the footage you're actually talking about when you were walking with him and you were shooting. Yep. So he felt like kind of, I don't know if he's obligated. I guess I shouldn't say that. But whatever he did, he gave a little speech to the whole crew that was there, the hotel crew, and then just kind of the people that were kind of walking around him. Yeah. And his the sentiment was basically like he's been doing this his whole life. Yeah. You know? The man's tired. Like since yeah, dude. Yeah. That's it. You you know when you're a fighter since you're 6 years old and you're living yeah. that lifestyle in Dagestan. It's not vacation. It's not vacations. It's you're yeah. always in a grind mode. You always yeah. have to do something you don't want to do every day like you can't get out of weight. You see how much weight he's gained? Yeah. 
Have you seen pictures of him? Yeah, his, his neck face is, right. is like not yeah. not that he's fat. He just he's no, he's, he's normal. He's getting healthy. He's filling out. You know, yeah. he probably yeah. walks around at 190 pounds, and he was fighting at 155 pounds. Yeah, so crazy. for not, someone who's not familiar with that sport, think about every time you fight. Now you have to get down to 155 pounds. Yeah, it's not fun. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think I agree with you. I think he's done. I um, he's a man of his word, so there's no reason to to question otherwise. Um, Looks like he loves coaching now. Like take it taking over in his father. He does, dude. He does, man. I don't know if you saw Islam's fight, but he coached him <laughs> that right dude into is that next. Segment. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he's nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but really quick, man, I just want to I, I uh, give a shout out to your company and, and, and give you an opportunity to talk about Fresh Cut Sports. Fresh Focus Sports. I'm sorry, Fresh Focus Sports. All good, all good. Um, Fresh Focus Sports is kind of an extension of everything that I've kind of talked about. When, when I was coming up, any passion project I did, I put under that moniker for the most yeah. part. You know, the blackout, yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't really go anywhere. And then a couple of years ago, me and my friend Anthony Kazwanza kind of restarted the whole thing. And we kind of went into obviously still telling sports stories, but we went into like the high school basketball world a lot in these yeah. last couple of years. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of documentary content. Um, and it's starting to pay off. Like, you know, we're not killing it. We both have careers that we do this on the side, you know, but yeah. there's a value in owning your own content. Um, and that's kind of been the focus. So we're bringing our professional storytelling skills to the high school basketball world. So it's benefiting whoever we go film. And then obviously it's benefiting us because we're filming some of the best players that are going to eventually be NBA players. Um, and not just that we're telling cool stories. Like, again, like I've told you, like I love hoops. So showing up to that is is not it's not hard for me you know it's not yeah. showing up to a dance recital and trying to film that that would be tough yeah. for me because that's not my passion for yeah. someone else that would be awesome and basketball would be a chore so it's like yeah. it's just about each person you know yeah. um but and yeah, you guys are YouTube bi-coastal channel, right so because anthony's in, in yeah, uh, new so york anthony's and you're in la in, exactly so i moved out from the east coast i i was i'm originally from new york i lived in pa i lived in jersey i lived all over the east coast but i've lived in la for the last almost five years now so that was kind of when i moved out of la and i left you know the nba office in 2016 um when you moved out of new york yeah that was in new jersey yeah but it's right next to you said la when you moved out of la when you moved out of new jersey when i moved out yet new jersey to la sorry yeah we started it back up because it was like yo we could cover the whole country on you know do it fairly cheap because it's just like you know time and whatever it is but we're we're both kind of one man bands do it all we could both shoot edit produce um so we do a lot of content and we put it on our youtube channel which is youtube.com slash fresh focus sports we've slowly built it up to thirteen thousand. um we're proud of that it's not a huge number but it wasn't easy getting there sure um we could have went like the highlight route or could have went clickbait stuff to get more followers and stuff like that but this is a long game for us this is something we want to look at you know be a powerful brand and over the next decade not just you know and by doing stories that i don't think you could really start this without a big funding because 
you need too many skills in one person. Same stuff that you're doing, right? For like what you did with the LA stuff, definitely should win awards on that. But if you put that into a film and you needed, if someone needed to crew that as a production company, that would have cost them $100,000 for the summer. Right. Maybe two hundred thousand right. dollars, but because you have all those skills wrapped up in one, and you could produce, you could interview, you could tell stories, you could shoot, you have the know-how to make that come to life. It, it was your time, which yeah. is valuable, but it's yeah. not a hundred thousand dollar budget. And I think the same thing is with us. Like, I could show up with one camera and do a documentary series. Yeah. I don't need anyone else to show up, and I say yeah. that confidently, not cocky, just because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, what yeah. I do. Yeah. You know, I could, I could know that that story, you know, oh, I got to interview his mom because like, that's just what I've done the last 15 years is tell stories. So like, I know I could do that. So if I just had to crew that out each time, it would be insane. Yeah. No, it reminds me of, uh, I mean, you know, Tim (laughs) Kennedy, right? Yeah. So Tim Kennedy and I built a little relationship because I did a little profile on him uh, for Bleach Report, but they had to cut out most of it because there was too many guns and too many talk talk about like killing terrorists and shit. So I told him that you know one day I would do his his documentary and and uh, he started a thing called Sheepdog Response, and at the time nobody had filmed anything and and he said I'll I'll let you come but I don't have time to vet anybody else so only you can come. So I went there and I shot it, I edited, I I did the interviews, I did everything. And I put together like a little 20 minute doc, which has just a little over 2 million views. And at that point, it was a necessity because even if I wanted to crew up, I couldn't, you know? So I think it's amazing, man, what you're doing. I, I love what you're doing. And, and um, sir, go ahead. Yeah, Amir, to that point, it's exactly why Embedded is a one man band. Well, exactly what you just said, because you can't get the audio guy in the car. You can't get the producer in the car. It's like, no, we're going off to work out. We're going to the mountain to run. Like, I, you know how many times I've ran it, rode in a truck to get to a scene or with Khabib's team? I've, I've right. been in the trunk with Khabib's team a billion times. In Brooklyn, yeah. I rode around me and Will Harris in the back of the van in the trunk because yeah. you're just trying to hang with Team Khabib. You know, so that's the exact, what you just said is, is why it's like, this guy's going to cut weight in a sauna. No one wants a producer there and an audio guy looking at him. The camera guy's bad enough. We don't need three other guys in here. So to have all those skills is, is huge. And it's also too, I wonder if you get this sometimes. Sometimes I think it's, I prefer to shoot by myself sometimes just because I'm like, I don't have to deal with anybody else. Like I don't have to deal with somebody's mood or if they're hungry, if they didn't sleep in their fucking bed last night. But sometimes I find it, sometimes I'm like, I should, I should reach out more because I kind of take on a little too much on my own. Cause I'm always like, oh, I can fucking do it. I can handle it my own, my, myself. I don't want to call this guy and ask him. And it's not even really a money thing. It's just kind of like, uh, do you ever find yourself in that predicament where you're, you're just I just kind of agree with you. If, if we were throwing emojis, I'd be throwing a hundred emoji because like, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, dude. That I, it's my, probably my, I do that to a detriment. Um, I don't think when I first moved to LA, I'll give you like a parallel to that story. I was so gung ho on filming. I was like, I'm going to get out of the editing. I'm going to get out of producing. I'm just going to become this fucking dope DP. Like that's, that was my goal. I was listening to podcasts. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then I realized what I was trying to accomplish. I would actually hate going on set and having someone sit over my monitor and tell me that they don't like 
something on my screen and that we need to bring in this or she's lit this thing, it would make me go crazy. To put my life around that would be actually insane. So I actually was like, I'm going to try to strive myself to get into a position that I'm going to go crazy. I'd much rather, it's much more gratifying doing yourself too. Because, you know, it is a little bit if you're going to be honest because it's like, yo, I did this. But that's not why I don't like working with a big crew. I just like the autonomy. I talk about this with Will Harris all the time, who has anatomy of a fighter, that great yeah. docu-series on um, YouTube. Yeah. And he's the same way. We talk, we have this exact con because you get into those things where you're like, man, I wish I had a PA here that could just run and get that light. I don't want to go down to the parking lot and yeah. I really should be filming this. Or just move that light over just like two inches. For sure. So <laughs> I think there's a fine line. I need to be better at it as well. I need to get more people involved. Um, but you also can't hide who you are. Like, I'm not going to work great in a big crew and have a a director tell me, I want to shoot like this because the light is coming in. Like, I don't, I don't want that at all. Like, I'd rather not shoot. I'd rather not shoot. Like if I'm not making the decision on it, I'd just rather not shoot because now it's like yours. So I think you have to know what you want. Some people are good in that thing. You have to know yourself. That's just comes with age and you know, yeah. self growth, awareness, I guess. Yeah. 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 Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Another big, um, Gary V point. Yeah. But you know what? Aware. That might actually help me, man. Cause before Gary V, I was like, I'm going to be a commercial DP. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to do when I moved yeah. out. I was like, I'm going to just get my skills so good that I'm working on set a couple of times a year. Yeah. But dude, a lot of pressure comes with that. And then it's different life, man. Yeah. You know, you're shooting a t- toothpaste commercial and you're just worried that, you know, it looks nice on her teeth. Like yeah. that's not exhilarating for me. I'd much yeah. rather watch Khabib hit a dead bag for 15 minutes straight until he tires 100%. out. And be like that dude's a beast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you also just build those relationships, you know. And then another big thing for me is because I, I started Metric Nine Productions, so I could just do my own productions. Because you know, without naming any names, I worked for Bleacher Report for a while, and I remember we interviewed Conor McGregor before his fight in Boston, I forget the short German guy's name who I know, totally it's destroyed. It's my first fight ever. It's my first fight ever with the UFC. My first day working with the UFC ever. Dennis Siva. Dennis Siva. I can never remember because his name doesn't fit. Anyways. That's where um, he jumped over the cage after Aldo. Yeah, exactly. So we interviewed him, him me and Lance Fresh, who, who you know. We interviewed yeah. him in New York and Connor loved us. I mean, he just was just like, you two come with me to, to, to Boston. You can f- you film the whole thing. You know, Lance will go out, da, 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 go shopping, all this shit. So we go back to Bleacher Report. We're like, yo, this guy, Conor McGregor, he's got the gift of gab. He's Irish. He's, you know, he's awesome. He just invited us to go to, to Boston. And they're like, uh, let's see if he wins or not. Oh, my goodness. You know, and we were just like, what? He just invited, like, he just personally invited us to go shoot, like, everything, you know? Um, another one was... Um, Paige Van Zandt. So, so I find Paige Van Zandt. I'm like, this girl's a fucking fighter. I'm like, look, check this girl out. She's going to fight. I reach out to her and her team at Reebok. They're like, yeah, come on through. They're like, yeah, let's see if she wins the fight or not. And she got completely, like, she got beat down. Like, her, that's when she had that bloody face, you know? And they were still like, yeah, come out and do the, the, the feature. And I go back, and, and the guys at Bleacher Report were like, yeah, you're pretty girl. She got all beat up. You know, don't want to do a, a feature on her now. I was like, no, now's when you do the feature. Because she's going to have yeah. a comeback. They're like, nah, yeah. forget it. And then she turns into Paige Van Zandt, you know? And, and I yeah. just remember being like, I hate asking people if I can go shoot something. Yeah. That's how this started. 
that's why I think if you're truly, and I'll use the phrase everyone uses, a content creator, if you truly are at heart, there's no way you're not going to work for free because there's stories no one's going to pay you to do. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there has to be money. That's what people don't understand. Like you can have the greatest idea. If no one's approving that or putting money behind it, it's not going to get done. So yeah. any real – that's the way I look at independent films like so different now too. Anything that's real and someone's passionate about that's not – that someone's not giving them a big check is the stuff you should be supporting. It's like it's the yeah. passion stuff. You know, like – and that was what Fresh Focus Sports really was is we would – I'd meet a friend and be like, oh, dude, we got to do a story on you. No one's doing a story on you? Well, I'll do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I did yeah. a story on my buddy Ray Robinson like that. He was a boxer yeah. that I met um, when I was filming Eddie Alvarez the week of the Conor McGregor fight. Me and Ray became like really good friends. He told yeah. me his story. Crazy. We couldn't even really put it all out there because a lot of his family is still alive and yeah. he just he didn't want to – bring all this stuff up you know yeah. but i mean this guy lived a crazy life dad drug addict mom drug addict dad abusive tried to kill the family gas him out they mom yeah. tied clothes together to let them out of the kitchen like crazy stories right yeah. and this guy grew up in a homeless shelter like dude all odds against him right. and he's a boxer he's still a boxer he's in philly now uh, and his name is Ray Robinson, and he was telling me this story. I'm a boxing fan. I know Ray Robinson is. I'm like, yeah. dude, your name is Ray Robinson. This is your story, and no one's ever done a doc on it? Because yeah. if you're in the boxing world, if there's not a promoter that wants this guy's story out, who's going to do it? Exactly, yeah. There's no money behind to do it. So yeah. I did it on Ray. We put it on our channel, and it was it actually did well for him. He was he was out of the thing for like two years because he was in a car accident, and he got a fight within like six months off of that, and he got a fight on Showtime. So like awesome. we felt happy about that. We didn't make any money on that, but Ray's still right. a great friend. When I go yeah. back to Philly, he has a fight coming up. I'm going to go film him in his gym just because he's my buddy, and I want to tell his story. I want Now I want to just document him, you know? Yeah. So – that's what Fresh Focus Sports has become and that's like that's like it's not the being the best way to make you money, but if you love what you do, you're going to meet some great people, you can tell cool stories, and um, if you get a big enough platform, you can make money. Like Will did. Will went Cuz like you said, you got to think of the long game. Hell yeah. You know. And so, now look, I don't know enough about it, but like NFTs, right? Yeah. All that stuff that we shot over those years for free, if this NFT stuff becomes what it is and you're making all those things into NFTs, it's like a whole new market. Six months ago, people knew what NFTs was. I didn't, but I wasn't shooting for NFTs. But now that's going to become a thing that's going to be an opportunity just because we were chasing what we loved and putting in the work. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I still need to, to dig into the NFTs. I keep saying that I'm going so to watch. I, so do I. But what it is is the Top Shot thing has just made it crazy. So when people are buying, you know, say you have a famous photograph of the riots, of the protests, whatever it was, right? If you wanted to make that an NFT, you're going to put it through there's – a, there's a website called OpenSea, which is like kind of the, the marketplace for it. You're going to put a crypto on that that's going to now make that thing a digital item to sell. And now it, it, the crypto is what's making it the ownership of you. It's like proving it's your ownership. Right. And you could put royalties on it. So say you want to sell it for $1,000. You could say – 
I want to have 20% royalties on this every time it sells. Right. So in 10 years, if it sells for $200,000, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah, yeah, you yeah. could, you could be getting paid on that for life. And I don't know much about it. We both mentioned Gary V. He's probably the first person I heard about it from, Me too. but then Me the too. NBA top shot thing blew it out of the water. And now I don't it's know like what the NBA thing. top shot thing is. It's basically digital basketball cards. Um, so you're opening up a pack of digital cards and you might get like, you know, a, you know, a LeBron three, which would be huge, but you also might get a no name guys three, you know, but right. that's your basketball card. And if you look at some of the prices, these things are going for, that's what's started to open up people's eyes that it's like, Whoa, this is crazy. If you start to like add this up, you know, yeah. um, I'm still, I'm taking calls on it because I have some footage that I want to look into doing this with, right. but it's one of those things you could either link up with, like you could do it on your own and it might not sell, or you could try to find someone to link up to do it with, but they're going to take percentages of it, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, mm. that's kind of where I'm at with it at this point, of what I've learned. And yeah. that's real raw. Like, I don't, I mean, this has just been the last few days I've been, you know, I, I'm yeah. very uneducated in it, but yeah, that's just I what I do. Um, last thing I wanted to end on is, is just to geek out a little bit. What's it like walking behind a fucking fighter, man, to the ring? <laughs> Because let's see, you've done it. You've done it with Khabib. You've done it with Justin Gaethje. Yeah, I'm not sure who you those, were with uh, at the um, the BMF title, but I know you were there. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that becomes one of our. It's one of our job title uh, descriptions for when we cover a fight. Like you know, you almost cover it like a zone. Like you know, you get this guy covering his wraps. I'll get him walking out. I'll get him at the cage. You know, kind of yeah. like that, right? So like everyone has yeah. a responsibility. So on the night where you're walking behind the fighters, you definitely get some airtime. Yeah. Um, but it's it's awesome, man. I mean, fuck, I'm never gonna have a chance to do that. So that's kind of a thrill. Um, it's also an awesome shot when it's a packed crowd. You know, they put yeah. up those flags, and you're behind the flags, and the lights yeah. are going through, and so you're getting lens flare. Um, but just that feeling because you you're you're building up with the fighters because you've you've yeah, you, went, you know you like that whole week maybe even longer you've been with them and it's there, it's nothing like i've ever experienced with any other sport man i've yeah. seen guys losing game seven of the finals and just been like ah it's too bad man i hope he yeah. gets it next year right but when you see a guy get knocked out man right and a lot of these guys aren't crazy paid like other professional athletes where mm -hmm. you could just go rest on your 10 millions you know they yeah, might be yeah, making a yeah. hundred thousand for that fight you know maybe yeah so and then you got to pay the trainers. You got to pay like that yeah, whole team yeah, that came yeah. out with you. You're taking care yeah. of it. Yeah, man. There's 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 a lot of people in high professions that are making more than these fighters for the most part. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the the biggest thing I would say is with that is I dude I I'm be honest, bro. I used to be nervous when fights came on because the anticipation. You know, when you're at home, you're like, I can't believe these guys are about to fight. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. anticipation, that's like the best part of fighting is you see them like meet up and you're like, this is yeah. going to happen. Yeah, so yeah, at yeah. first, like that first Connor fight, when he walked out, I wasn't a huge fan that Dennis Siva and mm -hmm. that crowd. I mean, there's nothing like a Connor crowd. Right. 205 might be one of the in, best in sporting Boston events. Too. 205, the one in New York might be one of the best sporting events I've ever been at ever. NBA finals, anything. Right. It was amazing 205. But what I was going to say is, that kind of started to go away, the nerves. You just really start to notice certain guys, man. It was what I was saying before. Certain guys love it and mm. they're laughing in the back yeah. and they're, 
you know, busting balls with their friends and listening right. to music or they're commenting on the fight like, oh, I can't believe that guy left himself open or right. they're just like you and I. And then there's other people that you really see like wear it and that they're, you know, like that I like that you would think is normal. Like, oh, yeah. they're about to go into a fight. So it's really tough noticing like that. And I think um, a happy fighter is, is a scary fighter, man. Yeah. That's the one thing I would notice when they're happy in a good mood and stuff like that. It's good for them. Yeah. You know, I would have never thought that if I just would have walked into the sport raw. I'd have yeah. been like, this guy's not taking it serious, you know? Right. Right. It's not. It's like when they're in a – Yeah. Comfortable. That, just comfortable. That's the other thing. What's that? They're just comfortable. When they're comfortable. And comfortable, loose. man. Yeah. I'll give you one quick story before we go. Mayweather and McGregor. I was in Mayweather's Please. locker room. Oh, shit. <laughs> and – yeah, that wasn't that wasn't to be a flex. I'm just like really giving no, a story. No, because I, I left that off the uh, the intro, man. That should have been number one. Yeah. So I'm in his locker room, and I mean, at this point, I'm second camera, and I always joke that second camera is the best gig in in the business because yeah. all the pressure is on the main T DP, and I'm just you know I'm knocking off secondary cutaways and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was really aware and appreciating mayweather that yeah. fight yeah whereas the first time i was around him i was so nervous because it was all on me i was the main guy in right. that first story i told you 2013 yeah so dude this guy is so calm i mean anyone could remember how much buzz was around that it felt like the whole world was watching that fight right yeah. he was getting a head massage like just like this for like an hour laying up with his feet laid back watching the fight he asked them because they wanted him to come out. They were like, hey, we want you to come out, like, you know, and whatever. Not – they're not. We want him. No one – like, he calls the shots. Yeah. But they're like – he's like – so they say, you know, you're going to walk and whatever. He asked them what the pay-per-view numbers are. They get back to him with the numbers and he says, nah, let's hold off. and Like, let's get those numbers up. Right. So – that's like crazy to me. I know someone might just be like, so what's the big deal? You're about to go into a fight. The entire the world is watching. If you lose, you're going to be ridiculed. If you even get hit or looked any bad, you're going to be ridiculed. Like yeah. he's in a tough, not a tough spot, but like. No, all the pressure was on him. All yeah, the pressure was on it, him. Connor, Connor just showing just up was, was, yeah. Asking the numbers. I was yeah. like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. Money made it was, it, That was one of the most amazing things I saw, just how calm and the whole world's watching. And he just doesn't, he didn't care. Yeah. He didn't care. Yeah. He cared most about that money. Like, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever hear of the line he gave? Mm -mm. Maybe. I so, know you know how he walks out to the ring? Uh -huh. He has a, a ski mask on. Mm -hmm. He said that that was a legal bank robbery. <laughs> That's why he wore the ski mask. That's you've amazing. seen, dude, Mayweather's at all the Clippers and Lakers games, so you've seen him a billion times. Have yeah. you ever shot with him? No, I've never shot with him. I mean, I'm just, look, I'm 5'9", right? And anytime I'm next to a professional athlete and they're my size or shorter, I'm like, get out. Like, I couldn't believe Connor is about my height. And when I stood next yeah. to Mayweather and I shot him a couple times to his court side, and I was like, he's significantly shorter than me. Yeah. You know? Um, but a beast. I remember that. I remember thinking that um, with uh, what's the point guard for for the, the Raptors? Um, Lowry. 
Yeah, Kyle Lowry. I mean, I was shooting for USA, and I remember he walked by me, and I was like, wait, I don't know what he's listed at, but I'm 5'7", and he's, I mean, 5'9", and he's not much taller than me. So. First um, experience I ever had with that is I was in the edit room for the first, like, three or four years. I never, never went in the field, and the yeah. first time I ever went in the field, even as an editor, was 2007 All-Star in Vegas, mm-hmm. um, and I walked by Steve Nash, and I remember being like, oh, my God. Like, I'm not tall. I'm 5'11". Yeah. But he's – I don't know what he's listed at. But even if he is 6'1 or whatever, yeah. like, it's it was one of those things where, like, if you didn't know he was Steve Nash and you got matched up to with him in, like, a pickup game, yeah. I wouldn't be like, yo, this is ridiculous. This guy, You know what I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, yeah. be like – it wouldn't be those things where you're like, yo, mismatch. He's going to take me in the post. Right. So, like – all the things that ran through my head, I remember then I was like the amount of work that this guy put in that is somewhat the same size as me. And I've watched him do what he does on the basketball court. I remember being like blown away by that because yeah. I walked by him in the hallway. I was like, that wasn't Steve. That wasn't Steve Nash. Was it? Right. It was like one of those, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, you know, that, I, I distinctly remember that. And that's like 14 years ago at this point. Yeah. I had a similar thing happen to me with Allen Iverson. I was just like, uh, I don't know what he's listed at, but he's not much taller than me. Yeah. 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 Just adds. Listen, man, we could talk forever, man. I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to do that. I'm I'm having this happen a lot where I'm having people come on that I've worked with a lot and I've I've have mutual respect for it, but I've never sat down and talked to them at, yeah, same. at an hour's length and, and it's just it's honestly my my favorite thing to do that uh came That's out of That's awesome. This podcast, I appreciate so. you having me on, bro. That's 100%, been sweet. Man. And um, I yeah, appreciate you doing this. You're right in the middle of Embedded. Um, you know, you got something to go shoot. I'm going to be watching tomorrow night. I'm sure I'll, I'll be like, yeah. oh, there's, there's the Nassus or there's Rick Lee, or, you know. So. Yeah. Cool, Definitely. man. Well, I really appreciate your time. Uh, good luck shooting. And um, we have to catch up next time you're in LA. For sure, bro. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. If you found this episode inspiring, please subscribe, like, leave a comment. And if you know someone that would find this conversation useful, please share. Your support is greatly appreciated as we build the Shoot Wisely community. Thank you. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is sponsored by Metric 9 Productions. At Metric 9 Productions, your story is our passion. And I should know because it's my company. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is also sponsored by DTLA Culture. DTLA Culture, uncovering DTLA one story and image at a time. For more visit shootwisely.com. Thank you for listening to the Shoot Wisely podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi.